All right. So, uh, yeah, I'm not Pastor Grinder, as you might have noticed, um, but I've got you for the next little while here. Uh, I preached a while ago, and it was, I think I was done at like 11.45. This is not going to be like that. Um, just a heads up. We've got a lot of material to go through. Um, and so there's actually some of the stuff I had to take out this morning when I was going through it. But uh, um, yeah, let's go ahead and just pray, and then we'll, we'll get started here. So, uh, Lord, uh, thank you for your church. Thank you for... Um, your body, I thank you for uh, making a way for us to come to you and, and the gift that that is, Lord. And I pray that as we uh, study your word, um, you would give me uh, words to speak, Lord, and wisdom. And I pray for, um, for your body, for those hearing it, Lord, that they would um, get what you would, you would want them from this. And I ask that we would go here, uh, away from here, better servants and uh, more in love with you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> So this morning, we're going to be talking about uh, the kingdom of God. And for those of you who were at Sunday school, there's going to be a little bit of crossover. And then also um, last week when Uncle William has been talking about um, that in, in John, going through that. So um, basically, we're going to be going through in the context of Matthew 13, 24, uh, verses 24 through 52. Um, so I want to take a look at what the kingdom of God is and examine what its current manifestation means for the church today. Due to that, I want to look at Jesus' teaching about the kingdom in Matthew 13. But before we do that, um, it's, going to be, it's going to help us if we get some context. Um, this, I hope, will, we will be able to accomplish um, twofold. First, by briefly looking at the, what the kingdom of God idea meant to the early Jews, so what the disciples would have been thinking when they heard that, um, what they were expecting from this Messiah. Secondly, I want to take a brief look at the current systems of thought that seek to explain the kingdom of God um, and what it is. So why is this important? Um, well, the kingdom of God was a central motif uh, in the teachings of Jesus. It's, uh, he has about 12 parables devoted to uh, explaining it, and it's mentioned 126 times in the Gospels alone. In these teachings, he emphasizes what the kingdom is like and describes its implications for us. He obviously thought it was important for his followers to understand, so we should also give ample time and thought to understanding what he meant when he was describing the kingdom and let the implications penetrate our hearts and our minds so that we might be better followers of Christ and more faithful citizens of his kingdom. I think to do this, it's important that we understand in which phase um, we're living in the context of redemptive history. And as it, as it concerns the kingdom of God, our views of God's kingdom are going to inform our missional zeal, our views of God's sovereignty, and our views of eschatology, which is just a big word for end-time stuff. Um, so a couple clarifying points before we start. So what is the kingdom? So just simply put, the definition of the kingdom of God is the place where God reigns supreme and Jesus Christ is king. Um, it's where God's authority is recognized and His will is obeyed. Um, and when we're looking at Matthew here, we're going to see the kingdom of heaven, that phrase used several times. Um, for our intensive purposes, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven um, are referring to the exact same thing. Um, so let's jump into this. So what did the disciples expect? 
And so in order to understand this, I want to take a trace the concept of the kingdom throughout the Old Testament. Um, and this is going to be a, a very brief look from 30,000 feet, okay? So the phrase, the kingdom of God, um, it's never used in the Old Testament, but the phrase, the kingdom of the Lord um, and God's kingdom are. Additionally, the concepts of God's kingship is present throughout the Old Testament. This concept was introduced in Genesis when God gave his commission to Adam to rule and subdue. We see that in Genesis 1, 26 through 30. Adam was to rule over creation and be an ambassador to it. He was supposed to spread God's dominion outside the boundaries of Eden to the furthest reaches of creation. Instead, as we know, Adam rebels and is kicked out of the garden. However, God does not give up on establishing his kingdom on earth. Adam, Adam, er, God intended then to bring it about via Abraham and his descendants, as we know through Israel. So God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, saying that through you all nations will be blessed. <clears throat> um, and God's kingdom will grow um, from the descendants of Abraham. This is the inception of the nation of Israel, which God commissioned to be ambassadors to other nations and be a blessing to all as God reigned extended across the earth by Israel. They were to be a light to the world and show surrounding nations the way of the Lord. We can see a picture of this in Micah 2 or 4 2. For the sake of time, I don't really have time to read that, but it's there if you guys want to read it. Um, God delivers Israel from Egypt and, and he commissions them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19 6. Um, and it being a kingdom of priests, or be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So they're supposed to be kings, which what was the job of a king was to rule. And then priests, they're to serve as a sort of a bridge between God and man. Um, however, we know this didn't happen. We read through the book of Judges and the books of Kings. Um, and you see wicked ruler after wicked ruler and this downward spiral um, and uh, this constant violation of God's precepts. And the king, who was supposed to be the head of the nation, who is commissioned by God to be ambassador throughout the world and ultimately bring God's kingdom to fulfillment on earth, um, they did not obey this commission. Instead, they're evil and tried to build their own kingdoms in blatant disregard for God's kingdom. Um, <clears throat> so you see the cycle continue, uh, mostly until David and God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. Um, that's specifies that from the Davidic line, a king shall arise that will be an ambassador to the nations and in, in a way that other kings have not. And the king's reign will be perfect and he will have an everlasting throne. Um, the, prom and the, the promise made to Abraham to be a blessing to all nations and the covenant made to David never materialized in the Old Testament. And said Israel and Judah are carried off in exile as we know. And Israel is allowed to eventually return, build a temple um, under the Persian Empire after Babylon's conquered. Then we, we can read about that in Ezra. And then the Greeks, followed by the Romans, and eventually the second destruction of the temple in 70 AD, um, followed by this long stint of you know, uh, displacement for the Jewish people and the reestablishment of, of Israel in 1948. Um, but based on the Old Testament promises to the disciples, we'd ha we would have certainly been expecting a literal restoration of the land. That's what they would have been expecting. They've been looking at passages like Jeremiah 30, verse 3, that says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their father, and they shall take possession of it. 
So the disciples, they also assumed an imminent coming of the kingdom. There is no evidence in the Old Testament they, they would have been expecting a 2,000-year gap. They were expecting the Messiah to be a king who would free them from oppression and whose reign would be established forever. They would have been looking at passages like Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, which says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no, no end, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So they were expecting a ruler who would free them from the Romans and give them back the land that was promised to Abraham. And they were expecting a literal conquering king and a bringing of this kingdom at that moment. But as obviously in the way that in which the kingdom manifests itself was contrary to what they thought. And this is clearly seen if we look at Matthew 16, 21 through 23, where <clears throat> Jesus rebukes Peter because he was setting his focus on, on, the, on this earthly kingdom. Jesus says this view of things is so contrary to what he had been teaching. He says, get behind me, Satan. Um, I'm going to read that real quick. Um, so verse 21 um, here in Matthew. So from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So obviously here Peter was, was if you read the section above this, um, God says, Blessed are you, Peter, because he recognizes that Jesus is the Son of God. But then here he's saying, you know, get behind me, Satan, because he's saying that he's got to go and suffer many things. So the disciples obviously did not get it at that moment. Um, they were still expecting this, this conquering king. Um, <clears throat> but as we've seen in the Old Testament, does not seem to, the, the Old Testament does seem to promise a literal kingdom that promises a national inheritance. It is understandable then that the Jews would have been looking for a conquering king who would save them from oppression and introduce a new age where Israel would be a light to nations. The concept of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament was universal and in all people on the earth would bow. However, this is not what happened. Um, when Christ came and said he cast judgment on that generation, we see that in Matthew 12, and focuses much, on his, much of his ministry on the Gentiles. So this begs the question, if Christ came to usher in his kingdom, why have we not seen every element of its fulfillment yet? And what do we do with passages like Matthew um, 3, 2, which say, <clears throat> Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or Matthew 4, 17, again, which says, From that time Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because <clears throat> these passages seem to imply a sense of eminence to the ushering in of this kingdom. So how do we, and how do we reconcile the fact that here we are 2,000 years later and we still have not seen the kingdom of God penetrate the world in the way the Old Testament seems to imply? And why does Jesus tell us to pray for the coming of the kingdom in the Lord's Prayer? So in order to understand this, we need to figure out what Jesus actually meant when he was talking about the kingdom of God in the context of Matthew 13. <clears throat> 
to do that, um, we to do that, we need to understand the current theological frameworks that have sought to understand God's redemptive plan throughout history. My hope is that by looking briefly at these, we can come to a better understanding of what Jesus meant when he was talking about the kingdom and understand these parables a little bit better. So much of the way that we view the kingdom of God has to do with your theological bent. When it comes to interpreting scripture, um, that really shows itself um, throughout the whole. Um, we could really get into the weeds here, and I'll try not to, but it's important that we understand the lens in which you view God's redemptive plan for humanity. We're going to look at two prevailing views, but this is not at all an exhaustive study. I'd encourage you to go research this more yourself. Um, go to John Sunday School. He's been talking a little bit about it. Um, the first uh, view here is the dispensationalist view, okay? So dispensationalism, uh, or the dispensationalist view, they view history as a series of dispensations. Don't let that big word confuse you. All it means is a distinct period of time, okay? And in which God interacts with mankind in a specific way. According to this framework, uh, they explain God's kingdom in the following ways. So they would say that when Jesus announced the kingdom, or John the Baptist announced it, or the apostles, the gospel uh, announced the gospel of the kingdom, they, the proclamation that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, like we just read, consisted of a legitimate offer to Israel of the promised earthly Davidic kingdom designed particularly for Israel. However, the Jewish nation rejected their king and with him the kingdom. Okay? And so because of Israel's rejection, the kingdom was postponed until the second advent of Christ, the millennial kingdom. Um, <clears throat> and then they would say that the kingdom, because it was rejected or postponed, it entered a mystery phase. And that's the phase that we're going to be talking about in Matthew 13, um, which is the phase that we are currently in. So the mystery form of the kingdom has to do with the church age when the kingdom of heaven is embodied in Christendom and God is now ruling on the earth in so far as the parables of the mystery of the kingdom of heaven require. And then we can, I took this whole section out of this, but we could really get into it when we were talking about the end times and stuff because there are some different views on that. Um, I'd encourage you to go research that yourself, but we're going to skip ahead to the next uh, uh, view here, which is the view of the covenant of covenant theology. So they use, covenant theology uses theological concepts to con, uh, concept of a covenant to organize principles of Scripture. <clears throat> Oops, sorry. Skip a page. Maybe you'd like that. Um, <laughs> the covenant theologian says that the church has been grafted into Israel and is therefore, and therefore the promises made to the church are made to Israel are for the church. This means that when the Bible says the kingdom is, is at hand, is referring to the spiritual kingdom ushered in by the coming of the Holy Spirit and Jesus' reign, reign now in, is now in the church. The covenant theologian would emphasize a single plan for all of God's people, not two separate plans, for, for one for the church and one for Israel. This means that the kingdom promises made to Israel, Israel are now for the church, and when Jesus said the kingdom of God was at hand, he didn't, he didn't alter his ministry because of the rejection of the Jews, but was talking about a spiritual kingdom, not a literal one from the beginning. So the main difference is just in summary here. First, dispensationalism views history as a series of dispensations, um, while covenant theology views history as one continuous story. Second, dispensationalism views, believes that the church is a separate entity from Israel, while covenant theology believes that the church is an extension of Israel. 
third dispensational views God's promise to Israel as being fulfilled in Israel, while covenant theology believes that God's promise to Israel are fulfilled in the church. So we can find some common ground here. So both views agree that there is a spiritual or mystical form that Christ of the kingdom that Christ ushered in um, when he came to earth. And this manifestation of the kingdom was not revealed in the Old Testament, but was hidden until Jesus revealed it to his disciples and the apostles. And it's in this kingdom that we currently reside. Both sides also agree that his kingdom is not yet fulfilled and that there is a future manifestation of it that is yet to come. These are the two primary concepts to keep in mind as we're going to look at these parables. Okay, we're almost to the text. So a little more context here. Why parables? So why does Jesus speak in parables? Um, well, Matthew, I'm just going to read this. Matthew uh, 13, 14 through 15 tells us, <clears throat> it says, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Israel is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For the people's hearts has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. So parables are not just some nice way that Jesus taught to tell stories. Um, they were a form of judgment. Um, Jesus makes the link between this and the prophecy in Isaiah. Um, parables were, sort, were used as a sort of divine form of multitasking. Um, they were brilliantly devised and utilized by Jesus in order to fulfill what was spoken in Isaiah, as we just read, and present truths that could really only be understood to those who were interested in understanding them. <clears throat> Jesus' use, use of parables resulted in being able to convey complex divine truths in a way that the disciples could get while still making it so that those that, so those that rejected Jesus would hear but never understand and see but never perceive. Um, John MacArthur, he described Jesus' use of parables as divine genius. I'm inclined to agree with him. And I, I'd encourage you, next time you're reading one of these parables, get into it. There is a, there is a ton in here, a ton of, of nuggets. Jesus, you start studying these and you're like, wow, this, this had to come from heaven because it is um, the way that Jesus put these together is, is, is really astonishing. Okay, so let's get into um, our text here. So we're, gonna, we're just going to talk about these. There's, let's see, there's one, two, three, four, four, four different parables. There's a couple that I'm going to skip because they talk about the exact same thing. Um, but we're going to start off here with the parable of the weeds in verse 24. So I'm going to go ahead and read that. Uh, it's me 24 through 30. So he put another parable for them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be com compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, among, among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. The servant of the master, master of the house, came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, least in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at, at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. So um, 
We don't have to uh, do any sort of fancy exegesis with this because uh, Jesus basically tells us what it means. Um, so we're going to go there. He can explain his parable way better than I can. So uh, Matthew uh, 36 through 42. Um, so it says, uh, explaining this parable to his disciples. So he says, Then he left the crowd and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the seed and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. <clears throat> so Jesus sows the good seed, the field is the world, and the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. So Jesus came to the earth to establish the beginnings of his kingdom by his church. Um, the sowing is the message of the gospel, and the good seeds are the, are the people who accept Jesus' teaching and understand it, who eventually bear much fruit as described in the actually the parable that we're not going to get to, but it's the Matthew 13, 23 parable. Um, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy is the devil. The angels are sent at the end of the age to separate the sons of the evil one from the sons of the kingdom and pass judgment on such individuals. So these, these parables indicate that there will be non-believers in the mystery form of the kingdom, so what we're currently living in. Um, and this should encourage us because it is easy to get discouraged and feel like the kingdom is going to be snuffed out by evil when we look at our world today. But Jesus tells us that, that, that the nature of the kingdom of God has a mixture of true Christians and false Christians in its current condition. Jesus tells us that this is going to be expected. And this is kind of a side note, but um, the Greek word for uh, weed is actually the word darnel, and it actually refers to a specific type of plant um, that looks a lot like a wheat plant. You can't actually distinguish it from what I understand until they're at maturity. Um, and so there are a lot of people in the church today in the mystical kingdom that we currently reside in who um, you know, are not wheat. And another point in this parable, Jesus says he's not, or the master says he's not going to take up any of the weeds in fear that he might lose one um, shaft of wheat. Um, so Jesus is, he, he's, not, he's not willing to lose even a single one. Um, <clears throat> okay, so let's go into the next parable here, uh, parable of the mustard seed um, in 31 uh, through 33. Um, the mustard seed in 11, um, they're saying similar things here. So he put another parable for them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field is the smallest of seeds, but when it grows, it is larger than all the garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. <clears throat> so the parable of the mustard seed and leaven shows the power of God's kingdom. The mustard seed being small, small becomes a large plant, um, the mustard seed was the small seed in Palestine that was being planted re at regularly at the time. Um, and Jesus express, expresses this because it was the smallest seed that they were familiar with. So don't get hung up on, 
oh, that's not really the smallest seed in the world. Jesus was wrong, therefore the Bible. That's, that's not what he's saying. That's not the point of it. It was the smallest one at the time in Palestine that they were familiar with, so much so that it was actually proverbial. Um, you know, we might say, you know, he was on him like stink on a pig or something. And, you know, they would say that guy has the patience of a mustard seed, whatever. So um, it was something they were familiar with. That's the point. Jesus is trying to make this comparison. So this parable tells us the kingdom will start small. Um, and this is not, again, what we already talked about, what the disciples were expecting. They were anticipating a worldwide kingdom that would come quickly and in large measure. As we discussed earlier, Jesus reveals the mystery of the kingdom by saying, it will start small and grow significantly. The way Christ came into the world and his followers and Jesus' life in general all represent small beginnings. <clears throat> he was born in obscurity in a small town, in a manger, lived poor with, hum with a humble occupation, had a relatively short ministry, about three years, whose main proponents and followers were, so were poor social outcasts, and who ultimately died a criminal death on a cross at the hands of, Rome, at the, of the Romans. Talk about small beginnings. But this movement that Christ started would turn into the largest religion in the world, reaching every corner of the globe with an estimated 2.6 billion followers, providing hope and healing for over 2,000 years. As believers with the Bible and with hindsight as our informant, we are able to see how the mystical kingdom under the rule of the Holy Spirit has permeated much of the world. It is no wonder then why Jesus said in John 16:7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Um, Christ's rule, rule will ultimately engulf the entire world. This small seed will turn into a large tree that will provide shelter for alien creatures, which is represented by the birds, and will spread its dominion throughout the earth. Um, this imagery, we can see it in, I, I just for the sake of time, we don't have a lot of time to go there, but Ezekiel 31, Daniel chapter 4, um, the same imagery is introduced, and I think that's what Jesus was referring to when he's talking about um, this plant um, that, is going to, that is going to grow up here. So the parable of the leaven, um, so leaven, like the kingdom, permeates everything. Uh, Jesus is telling us, that though the kingdom starts small, it will grow, and like leaven, it will deeply envelop everything. The message of the gospel is so powerful that it can change the very nature of a person. Like a little leaven, it permeates the hearts of people and ultimately causes large-scale changes in society and the world. All right, so let's go on to the next parable here. Um, it's 13, which is 44 through 46 because um, we already went through the explanation of the parable of the weeds. So, um, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. <clears throat> So I think the main points of these, uh, there's three main points that I kind of pulled out of this um, that I want to go through here. So the first one is the kingdom is priceless in value. Each parable expresses this concept, each of these two parables do. Um, when Jesus is talking about the infinite value of the kingdom, he is referring to salvation and the gift of Christ himself. The gift of an eternal relationship with Christ and a restoration back to humanity's original purpose to be in constant communion with God. He is referring to the priceless gift of 
constant satisfaction and unwavering peace and joy that surpasses understanding, as well as the infinite value of being part of a kingdom with a supreme ruler who is sovereign and governs perfectly. And point two, the kingdom is something that is, that is superficially visible. Or I'm sorry, the kingdom is not something that is superficially visible. The treasure was hidden in this, these parables, and the pearl had to be sought. The value and the preciousness of the kingdom of heaven is not obvious because our eyes are often blinded by the cares of this world. C.S. Lewis diagnoses this uh, brilliantly when he says this. Um, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant what is meant by the offer of a holiday at at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. <clears throat> As Lewis describes, we are so often blinded by the cares of this world that we do not seek the kingdom and miss out on the immeasurable treasures that is offered to us. Uh, point three: the kingdom is personally appropriated. So the kingdom is personally appropriated. These two parables have personal slash individual natures about them that deal with individuals and their personal interactions with the kingdom. These parables describe the implications of the kingdom on a more personal level. And in each parable, a personal transaction is made that results in the gaining, gaining the great reward of the kingdom of God. Um, do, don't misunderstand what this, do not misunderstand me. This is not saying that you can buy your salvation or promoting a salvation of works. Instead, Jesus is trying to teach the value of self-sacrifice in order to gain a great reward. So the final part of this here um, is uh, 1351 through 52. Um, the parable of the net is, this, the point is the same as the parable of the weeds, so that one I, I'm going to skip over. Um, so, verses 51 through 52 here. So, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Um, so, I've, I've read this several times. In that section, I always just kind of, almost just ignore it. Like, I don't know what that's saying. Um, but if uh, I started doing a little research on it, and there's some debate on kind of what Jesus is talking about there, but I'm going to kind of tell you what I think it's saying here. So after the disciples responded that they would, that they understood the parables that Jesus was teaching them, Jesus referenced scribes who were Israel's, uh, teachers of the law. They were interpreters. They interpreted and studied scripture and passed along what they had gleaned to others. So they knew how to rightly live. Jesus uses this comparison because like the scribes, the disciples were taught deeper and more accurate truths by him um, <clears throat> of in, how to interpret scripture, in, the in this case mostly referring to the nature of the kingdom. And like the scribes, they were commissioned to share this with others. The truth that Jesus is referring to here is a connection between the Old Testament truths and the of the kingdom and the New Testament or New Covenant truths of the kingdom. Jesus compares these truths to treasures and conveys the necessity of bringing these truths to light by comparing them to a master who brought his new and old treasures out of the house for all to see. This parable embodies the whole book of Matthew. If we read 
Matthew, it emphasizes connection between Christ and Israel and makes us and makes and emphasizes the connection between the new um, and old treasures and makes it come to light more fully. Um, I'd encourage you if you ever are going through the book of Matthew, just reading it start to finish, go read the story of Israel and then come read the book of Matthew. Um, and then basically just substitute Jesus for Israel. It's it's incredible. Matt, the way Matthew structures this, he's just he's trying to get his audience to see, yeah, this Jesus is fulfilling what Israel did not fulfill. Um, anyway, that's a side note. So a little faster than I would. Okay, well, conclusion. I'm gonna be out of here early. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> Jesus fulfilled the suffering servant part of the prophecies laid out in the Old Testament and ushered in a spiritual kingdom. Jesus' mission at the time was not to set up a physical kingdom, although that will come. Instead, he was sent to usher, he was sent to usher in the beginnings of a spiritual kingdom. In order for that to happen, God bridged the gap between himself and humanity created by sin. He did this by becoming a suffering servant, dying and rising from the grave. In doing so, he conquered death and ushered in a new age by sending his spirit to dwell in his people both Jew and Gentile. This is why we can say the kingdom of God is not yet present and already here. That is why we, can command, we are commanded to pray for its coming while acknowledging that it is in our midst and at hand. God's kingdom is where God reigns and, his sovereignty, and, and in His sovereignty He has chosen to redeem and deliver people from their sins and refine His church often by suffering. This is the already present. But in His perfect timing, God will usher in a physical and perfect reign and accomplish all that He has promised. This is the not yet. We are currently living in the kingdom of God in its mystery form. We are called to promote the kingdom and help it spread throughout the earth. This means that we should use our time wisely and live as faithful citizens of the kingdom who value the treasure of it so much that we are willing to give up Everything for it. <clears throat> well, I guess I could have gotten some of the eschatology stuff, but we'll, we'll call it a day there. So let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for um, who you are. We thank you for the gift of your son. And uh, I just pray that as we go about... Um, our day, our week, that we would, our lives, that we would just recognize that we are citizens of your kingdom. We are currently living in a form of it um, under the rule of your spirits. And I pray that as the church would be faithful to uh, spread your light throughout the world, Lord, we would um, have a zeal for your word that transcends our other desires, Lord, that transcends our national pride, that transcends um, everything that we we have, Lord. I pray that you would bring out in us all that um, is not pleasing to you. You'd reveal it to us and make us better followers of you, Lord, um, even by suffering. I thank you so much for this body, and I thank you for the work that you are doing in your world, Lord. In Jesus' name.